Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show here on 77 WABC, where we're working very hard to make AM radio great again. For the next two hours, from 4 to 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern, that's our new time, by the way, we'll be talking news, politics, history, style, culture, and my favorite, food. So don't touch that dial. We're right here at 770 AM. If you live in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, could be the most powerful AM signal in America today. But what I really recommend to you is that you go and download the 77 WABC radio app. Download it to your cell phone right now. That way you won't miss any of the most amazing dynamic lineup anywhere on AM radio. We're talking about commentary, entertainment, uh, the, the full shebang. And it's all right here uh, at 77 WABC. So I'm talking Sid Rosenberg in, in Friends in the Morning uh, or Larry Kudlow, the apostle of economic growth, who quarterbacked the revitalization of America's economy under President Donald Trump. You can hear Larry on Saturdays. By the way, Larry is now in his seventh year in my international best addressed men's list that I publish uh, every single New Year's Day. He shares that distinction with Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly can also be here at 77 WABC. You won't want to miss Cindy Adams, the queen of gossip, uh, who always has the inside skinny, uh, or perhaps you prefer the offbeat but always provocative Frank Marano on the other side of midnight. Then, of course, there's America's mayor, the greatest mayor in New York City, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He's here every single weekday. Uh, my old friend Dominic Carter, a man who always has his fingers on the pulse of New York. Uh, and, well, frankly, you don't want to miss Rita Cosby on weeknights. She is a veteran radio pro uh, broadcaster, a reporter, and she always brings amazing news-breaking guests. And then, of course, there's Katz and Cosby. That's John Katzmatidis himself and Rita Cosby. You can hear them every day at 5 o'clock Eastern and on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. And at 5 o'clock and on Sunday mornings, they always have an all-star panel. So you never really get uh, anything but the very best breaking news 
and analysis right here at 77 WABC. So do yourself a favor, go to the App Store right now and download that to your cell phone so you don't miss any of that great programming. I was very sad to hear this past week of the passing of my good friend, the actress Suzanne Summers. Uh, she was a very good friend, a patriot, who I actually met at President Donald Trump's home, Mar-a-Lago, in Palm Beach. She was an elegant lady, uh, a true patriot. She struggled in the end uh, with cancer. God bless her, and may she rest in peace. Uh, now, on last Sunday's show, uh, I gave out my family recipe for Sunday sauce. Uh, I don't have time in every single show to give out the recipe, but this is your traditional Italian-American pasta sauce. I prefer it with a mix of one-third beef, one-third pork, one-third ground veal. Well, that's if you can afford the mortgage to pay for the veal. But I left out one important detail, and I got a lot of calls and texts on it. People ask me what kind of pasta. It's pretty simple. Uh, with uh, that kind of a heavy sauce, you want something like a rigatone or a, or, or a spaghetti or a larger size linguine. Uh, penna is also acceptable, but it's much too heavy a sauce for, say, capellini, also known as angel hair. So for the many people who phoned in or texted in or called in or emailed in, I have now answered your pasta questions, and I will reveal my ancient family recipe, which was my mother's recipe, my grandmother's recipe. Uh, my mother's maiden name, of course, is Corbo. We are Sicilians uh, from the uh, city of, or the town, I should say, of Corvo. Uh, anyway, I'm proud to be a member of the Italian-American Civil Rights League, uh, which you can find at ItalianAmericanCivilRightsLeague.org. This is a nonprofit organization. Everybody involved uh, is a, a volunteer. Uh, we are going to do charitable good works, but we're also going to fight for our Italian heritage. You might want to go online and check it out. Uh, Donald Trump was back in New York uh, last week. Uh, he was there for the continuation of the civil trial. Uh, now, it's important to note that he is not actually required to attend this trial, but he does so because he chooses to. This is a trial in which he's accused of inflating the value of various assets uh, to borrow money from banks who, of course, got paid back in full. Late last week, however, the judge in this case was threatening to gag Donald Trump, actually threatening to put him in jail if he continued to criticize the proceedings. Criminal defense attorney David Schoen will join us today to give us his take uh, on that trial, uh, but uh, that's just part of our lineup. Uh, the Trump, of course, claims that New York Attorney General Letitia James is politically motivated. She denies that, but 
Take a listen to this. The president of the United States has complained that I'm engaging in some sort of political witch hunt, that I've got some personal vendetta against him, that I campaigned against him. That is not true. This illegitimate president who sits in the White House. That president, because he's not my president, he's an illegitimate president. His days are numbered. His days are numbered. We've got to get ready to mobilize, and we've got to get ready to agitate and irritate until victory is won, but more importantly, until Trump is defeated. We will all rise up and resist this man. And ultimately, we'll bring him down. This illegitimate president, I'm going to give you the same level of respect that you gave to President Obama, and that is absolutely no respect at all. Donald Trump has got to go, hey, hey. That is not true. So let's recap where we are. Uh, The people who claim that Donald Trump would crash the economy and start World War III appear to be crashing the economy and starting World War III. Uh, Biden has funded Iran, giving them $6 billion in heretofore frozen funds. Uh, That, in turn, allowed Iran to fund Islamic terrorism against Israel, resulting in the surprise attacks two weeks ago uh, in the Gaza. Israel faces the worst terrorist attacks imaginable. We're talking kidnapping, rape, torture, murder of Israeli women, children, babies, the elderly, uh, and the disabled. It was amazing the way the media immediately bought into a completely false narrative uh, that said that uh, the Israelis had bombed a hospital in Gaza, killing 500 people. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib spread that particular falsehood, uh, but it got picked up everywhere in front of the, including the front pages of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. There's only one minor problem. It's not true. Uh, the incendiary device that went out, off at the hospital was actually set off by Hamas themselves. Now, Biden has made a completely unnecessary trip to Israel, uh, obstructing Israel's response, trying to dictate to the Israelis what targets they can hit, what targets they cannot hit, what weapons they can use, what weapons they can not use. Israeli security forces have been had to be diverted to protect Biden, who was there essentially for show and tell instead of spending their time and resources hunting down terrorists, Uh, and uh, not to mention rescuing almost the 200 outstanding hostages still being held by Hamas. Uh, After Iran funded uh, Hamas, believe it or not, the Biden administration, having not learned their lesson, decided to give Hamas $100 million for, quote-unquote, humanitarian aid. 
pardon me if I'm skeptical, but that's how I think this entire problem started to begin with. What Joe Biden is doing is freeing up resources for more Hamas terrorism. Why would we trust Hamas or their sponsors, the Iranians, to use the money for humanitarian or peaceful needs? All we're really doing is relieving the pressure on Hamas to free the hostages. Uh, it's really a shame. Joe Biden makes America's special forces divert from their mission for what was, in essence, a photo op. Joe Biden's White House posts pictures, actually incredibly exposing the secret identities uh, of uh, some of our special forces, putting their families in grave danger. And then this past week, I saw that some Cretan, some degenerate, actually painted a swastika on the Second Avenue Deli, which is one of the last outposts of great deli cuisine left in New York City. That's right, the Carnegie Deli is gone, the Stage Deli is gone. Uh, the old Second Avenue Deli downtown, well, they moved uptown. Uh, and uh, Katz, I guess, is really the only, Katz's delicatessen is really the only standard uh, left. It's really pathetic. The, uh, in the meantime, uh, if you are uh, not watching, uh, the real damage comes, I think, uh, if we have a two-front war. Uh, according to the UK Daily Mail, also the Post Millennial, 2,000 uh, American troops have already been selected uh, to be deployed uh, in Israel. We are assured that they will not be used in combat positions, but that's what they said at the beginning of the Vietnam War. Uh, you see, my concern is that if you have a two-front war uh, and America is fighting in both Ukraine uh, or, or both Ukraine and Israel, or America's assistance to those war efforts uh, prove provocative to the Chinese, well, then the Chinese will move on Taiwan. Uh, and if they move on Taiwan, well, that will uh, have a, a, an extraordinary effect on the American economy because Taiwan essentially has a monopoly on the production of these computerized chips, which are absolutely necessary for American technology. That means our stock market will take a hit. Uh, and if the stock market takes a hit, well, then the economy will take a hit. This uh, will be uh, another blow uh, to Joe Biden's prospects of re-election. But that is, of course, if he's even going to run. Nobody expected the war in Israel except for the enemies of Israel and America. The U.S. really has to think hard about this. The West as a whole is still in a state of complacency. We're mired in a losing effort in Ukraine. You won't read that in most newspapers, but I think it's the truth. And Russia has been playing the United States like fools. Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky know how much debt we are in and how much we spent our spending in two losing efforts in the Middle East. 
Our enemies now dominate us in both of those countries. That's the sad truth. Only last week, we had General Michael Flynn right here on this program to make that very point. Israel's misfortune should be a strong warning that we in the United States and the West as a whole are under attack. We are no longer perceived as strong. Uh, the world's structure under which we live and underpins the psychological uh, material uh, world we live in at this stage uh, needs to be defended actively. The invading marauders crossing our southern border could very easily start attacks inside the United States without warning, except for to those who would be supporting their efforts. Uh, this entire uh, escapade uh, in Gaza is a massive U.S. intelligence operational and policy failure. If you're just tuning in, folks, this is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show here on 77 WABC, and we're talking national and international politics today. Joining us shortly will be Darren Beatty. Darren Beatty is the uh, editor and publisher and founder of Revolver.News, and he has a groundbreaking story regarding Islamic infiltration of the U.S. government that could be the greatest spy scandal, well, since Alger Hiss. You're not going to want to miss that. Since uh, we gave Hamas $6 billion and didn't ensure that we had exceptional sources inside reporting on their activities or any guarantees in place not to act without our knowledge, we either have idiots running our foreign policy or perhaps these mistakes are intentional. There's a very disturbing leftist element growing in Israel, just like here in America. Foreign policy hawks in the Netanyahu administration know this. There is a leftist Israeli elite that is also uh, incredibly anti-West, which of course means anti-American. They believe that they can get along with elements like Hamas uh, and those in the Arab nations who they deem reasonable, which to them means globalist. That is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of Hamas. You cannot negotiate with peace, a peace, with people who have no interest in peace. Uh, these people think it is their duty to die uh, and to therefore meet Allah. That is how extraordinarily dangerous this enemy is. This globalist playbook uh, does not favor the idea of a free and sovereign state of Israel. This playbook sees the world as one thing, a playground for domination. Uh, let me also say that we are in a period of strategic weakness. We just had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff retire. The House Speaker was removed and the hapless Republicans seem unable to come up with a successor. Uh, we have uh, given uh, a, a policy of open borders while we continue to insist our borders are closed. In fact, there's 118 
gates on our Arizona-Mexico uh, border that are actually welded open. And then, of course, we've given $200 billion so far to Ukraine. Uh, and even uh, the Israelis were duped into giving away arms and ammunition to Ukraine. Arms and ammunition, trust me, they believe that they had today. These and many other conditions of weakness offer an advantage to our enemies that we must understand and understand quickly. Uh, they have to be overcome. In the end, the war in Israel is a precursor to what could happen right here at home. Also uh, coming up on today's show is a further uh, analysis of the political situation because Jason Miller, President Donald Trump's official spokesman, joins us to talk about, well, the latest efforts in both Washington, D.C. Uh, and in New York to uh, muzzle, uh, indeed gag the president. We'll also get Jason Miller's take on uh, Joe Biden's uh, speech late last week to the nation, uh, only the eighth time that he has addressed the nation in his presidency. Way back on April 3rd, uh, I predicted uh, on this very show that they would seek to gag Donald Trump, uh, that they would seek to silence him. Uh, I did not think it would happen in New York. I thought it would happen in D.C., uh, but I knew it would happen. I knew because they did exactly this to me when I was unjustly and falsely charged of, with a Russian collusion that never really existed. Uh, the judge constituted a gag order on me that I believe to this day violated my constitutional rights. Now, uh, I read and hear uh, that President Donald Trump intends to uh, challenge, or I should say uh, seek to appeal, uh, that gag order. I'm not optimistic about that. Let me tell you what happened in my case. First of all, the gag order on me was extraordinarily broad. It wasn't just a gag of me. It was a gag of every single member of my family, uh, as well as a gag of my supporters. That meant, for example, if Tucker Carlson, uh, or Greg Kelly, for that matter, uh, said something uh, in my defense, well, I could be charged with violating the gag order. Does that seem uh, extreme? Uh, get used to it because that is uh, the norm uh, in Washington, D.C. The, uh, the chances of the courts moving quickly on this appeal, I believe, are very slim. In my case, the courts waited eight months, uh, eight months under which I sustained extraordinary damage uh, from the Washington Post, CNN, and of course uh, the uh, MSNBC. Uh, and then after waiting to get my free speech rights back, the D.C. Circuit Court ultimately ruled that the motion by my lawyers was not ripe for decision because I had not first asked the judge who imposed the gag order on me uh, to remove it, something, of course, she never would have done. I think Donald Trump is uh, being optimistic 
if he believes either that the circuit court will move quickly on this effort to gag him. Uh, but like me, his gag order, which I just read, is extraordinarily broad. In other words, it includes members of his family and supporters. And in fact, the way this is written, they wouldn't even have to prove that Donald Trump directed somebody to defend him, say, on social media in order to charge the president with violating the gag order. The other big interesting development in the news, of course, are the hapless, feckless House Republicans. My sources tell me that their closed-door Republican caucus meetings are like a high school food fight with shouting, members lunging in each other, and a barrage of insults going both ways. How is it possible uh, that one of our two major parties doesn't seem to be able to choose uh, a Speaker of the House? Uh, it is uh, extraordinary that it has gone this many ballots. Uh, as of Friday, uh, Jim Jordan's prospects appear to be dimming, although he is hanging in the race. Uh, as an old friend of mine used to say, never underestimate the stupidity of the Republican Party. That's why we Republicans like to form the firing squad in a circle. Now, I'm certainly a Republican, meaning I have a sentimental attachment to the party of Lincoln, the party of Eisenhower, the party of Goldwater, the party of Reagan, obviously the party of my mentor, Richard Nixon, uh, and the party, of course, of Donald Trump. But I figured out uh, a long time ago that when you get right down to it inside the Beltway, well, there's only one party. You see that whole right-left, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat kabuki dance uh, is a Hegelian device that is used to put us, the voters, to sleep. At the end of the day, they're all in it together. That means uh, the loss of our civil liberties, uh, massive debt, uh, internet censorship, uh, and the slow uh, erosion of all of the freedoms guaranteed uh, by the Constitution. But more importantly, it means billions of dollars for war. Don't be surprised, uh, you heard it here first, if Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic minority leader, ultimately becomes speaker with the, every single one of the lockstep Democrats uh, and a handful of establishment Republicans. Yes, you heard it here first, it could actually happen. So if we review where we are, the United States is bogged down in the Ukraine-Russian war. Russia is threatening a nuclear attack on American cities. There would be no chance of survival. We are looking at a war in Israel with the most casualties in the nation's history. A wider conflict obviously threatened. Border patrol uh, is open at our southern border, allowing millions to illegally cross, including terrorists, Chinese nationals, and hundreds on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh, whistleblowers reveal that the president himself 
and members of his family uh, are involved in epic and vast corruption. The Biden Department of Justice seeks to imprison their chief political rival. That certainly has a, a banana republic feel to it. Uh, the FBI has now launched domestic surveillance operations against Trump-affiliated voters ahead of the 2024 election. That's according to an article in Newsweek. The U.S. president, including this past week, that performance on the plane on his way back from Israel, uh, shows increasing signs of dementia, repeating stories, rambling, not even really appearing to know where he is. He seems to lose his thought uh, in the middle of a, of a sentence. He just seems to trail off. I actually feel sorry for the old guy. Uh, public trust in government has reached a historic low. America trust of the news media is now so low that 50% say the industry, the industry intentionally misleads them. Uh, the EU-UK Biden administration is attempting to restrict all alternative media. Uh, Full-time employment is falling as the number of Americans holding multiple jobs nears historic highs. The bond market is crashing. The mortgage rates eclipse at 8%, the highest in generations. Medium home prices are now unaffordable with 99% of U.S. County uh, in uh, more than 99% of U.S. counties. Credit card debt is the highest in history. Credit card interest rates have reached the highest point in history. Car loan debt is the highest in history. Interest rates are the highest since 2001. Rapidly rising oil prices signal inflation starting to accelerate anew. National debt is now unrestrained. It just topped 33 million. And in most major cities, carjackings, murders, and other violent crimes reach the worst levels in decades. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show. We've got plenty to talk about today, so fasten your seatbelt and away we go. This is The Roger It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. This is Roger Stone and this is the Roger Stone Show. Take a minute to download that 77 WABC app to your cell phone so you don't miss any of the great programming here at 77 WABC. It is well worth your time. Joining us now uh, is one of the country's most prominent criminal defense attorneys. Uh, He represented President uh, Donald Trump 
uh, in one of his uh, impeachment proceedings in the U.S. Senate. Uh, to my mind, he may be the single most brilliant legal mind in the country because he is that rare lawyer who not only has an encyclopedic knowledge of the law, but he also understands the overlay of media, public opinion, politics, and everything that must be taken into consideration in a high-profile trial in America today. David Schoen, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Uh, so the last time we spoke, we did not have an opportunity to uh, to visit the question of the uh, gag order placed on President Donald Trump uh, by Judge Chutkin uh, in D.C. Uh, that's because the government's motion for uh, a gag order uh, was pending, but she had not yet ruled on it. Uh, because, uh, with full disclosure, you advised me uh, if I had had to go to appeal in the matter in which I was ultimately given a full and unconditional presidential pardon. You're well familiar with the gag order I was placed under. Uh, she has now ruled. Uh, that ruling is very broad. Uh, what is your take? Well, Judge Chutkin's order is perhaps the most serious of the gag orders, even though she thinks it's limited. When I say that, I mean, in contrast to the one in the civil case, I imagine we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, I, I say that because of the specific constitutional rights the defendant has at issue in a criminal case. Um, I don't think there's any possible way hers should be able uh, to be upheld uh, if a fair court hears it on review at some point. Um, I think that she violates the uh, freedom of speech clause and the freedom of the press clause, quite frank, frankly. I think there's an independent interest in the public, in the public has uh, to a public trial and to access to information. But think about it this way. All Donald Trump is, in that case, is a citizen who stands accused. As a matter of law, if under In Ray Winship and the abundant cases since then, uh, he's entitled to the presumption of innocence at all times, which means he stands before the world as an innocent person period, as a matter of law. Um, that's, you know, principal uh, Fifth Amendment uh, tenet. Um, we have to understand the First Amendment and the Sixth Amendment, that is the right to counsel, right to fair trial, right to speedy trial, um, all of those other rights, uh, in light of that Fifth Amendment right. In other words, he's innocent. So we don't now curtail his right to public access um, uh, because he happens to be charged with a crime. Courts have said it clearly. The United States Supreme Court said it in Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada. A trial, the defense of a trial doesn't begin inside the courtroom. The defendant's entitled to present his persona as it is, good or bad, to the press. And that's part of establishing whether he's innocent or guilty as part of the public right of access and so on. Um, uh, you know, the government has said before this case against him with Judge Chutkin isn't about his right to speak freely. Well, we know that's not true since they uh, uh, subpoenaed his social media, direct messages, and that sort of thing. It's about his speech, that's for sure. But here they're trying to cut out his speech completely uh, and chill it. I think what's important for the public to understand also is government wants to do this after issuing a long, detailed speaking indictment, an indictment that has unproven allegations throughout it, very specific, 
and it's now memorialized in anybody's computer who wants to download it forever. He has to be able to answer those things in the same kind of public forum. Um, you know, they talk about, oh, one concern could be influence the jury, uh, prospective jurors. Well, why is it that the speaking indictment wouldn't influence them? Or what about Judge Chutkin's comments in the other cases, the January 6th cases, really assessing blame for January 6th on President Trump squarely, the charges that he's facing now, she already decided in those other cases and said so on the record. Why wouldn't a jury pool be affected by that? Well, when it's the government or the judge who says it, they say, well, we can deal with that in voir dire, in the jury selection. Um, I, I think that you can't have it both ways. And finally, I would say, you know, what she has done in that case really gets to the core function of the First Amendment. She's trying to prohibit or chill speech that she just doesn't like. She doesn't like it that he criticizes the prosecutor in that case. She mentioned, you know, he called the prosecutor a thug. I happen to think these prosecutors are thugs. Um, and as a private citizen, everybody has the right to say that, whether he's charged with a crime or not. Now, people, lawyers might say, well, that's not very wise to do. You know, you're angering the judge and all that. That's his prerogative. I have a sanctions motion pending right now against two of Jack Smith's prosecutors for thuggish, unethical behavior, lying to a federal judge. Um, the public deserves to know all of those things. Public deserves to know that Jack Smith has shown horrible judgment in the past in bringing cases that never should have been brought against Senator Edwards, against uh, McDur uh, former governor of Virginia. Um, uh, all of these things are absolutely important matters for the public to know. And in those cases, by the way, you know, the lawyer spent a long time with Jack Smith trying to tell him why he shouldn't bring the cases. As it turned out, he shouldn't have brought the cases, and they had to be dropped eventually. Um, th that's what I have to say about it. Uh, very succinct. So in essence, is an act of prior restraint on his speech rights. That's right. Uh, what, would, what do you think uh, the president's prospects for relief are? I think, first of all, the procedural device has to be really set out. Um, as you know, well know, if this order is to be considered a condition of his release, you know, he's released right now on bail. If this is a condition of his release and the penalty is revoking that release, then it has to be brought up immediately on mandamus. That's pretty clear. Um, otherwise, it's not clear to me that an interlocutory appeal, an appeal before the case is finished, uh, is going to be allowed or heard. Um, and then if it is, it really, frankly, depends on the panel in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Um, they're all across the spectrum. And, you know, for some of the judges, I'm afraid, they can't get past the name Trump to the constitutional issues involved. And that's a real danger in these kinds of cases because bad law is made because of political perspectives overriding, really, the application of neutral principles of law. Uh, President Donald Trump was back in Manhattan last week uh, for the civil trial uh, in which he uh, and the Trump Organization uh, and its executives, including his adult children, uh, are accused of inflating the value of their assets, essentially in order to borrow money. This case doesn't make much sense to me uh, for several reasons. First of all, because no bank uh, would lend Donald Trump or anyone else money based solely 
on his appraisal of the value of his assets. Uh, and it appears to me that all of these banks were ably represented, <coughs> both in terms of uh, attorneys and also in terms of uh, determining the value of the collateral, in essence, uh, in this case. Uh, and there was also a, a, a disclaimer letter uh, involved in all of these transactions. But what really shocks me, other than the fact that Donald Trump showed up at the courthouse in a blue shirt and a blue tie, which I <laughs> thought looked great, but I've never seen him wear ever before. And I kidded him about it. And he said, you know, some people think if I'm not wearing a white shirt and a red tie, it's not really me. Good point. Uh, what really surprises me now is the judge in the civil case, maybe got this idea from Judge Chutkin, who knows, uh, he's threatening to, to actually jail Donald Trump for his public comments in this civil case. This seems extreme to me. Uh, it's extraordinary. And it's not just, you know, any old comment. But the judge, what turned the judge uh, off is, and, and, re and led to this order is that Donald Trump posted a picture available in the public domain of a, judge, a staff member of the judge with Senator Chuck Schumer. And the implication is, again, like with the judge, this is a politically biased process assigned to a politically biased judge, just like in the Stormy Daniels case, Judge Merchant, Trump haters, Trump hating judges. But he, he posted a picture about the staff member uh, with Chuck Schumer. And for the public to draw any implication they wish, and the implication might be clear to some. Um, maybe it's not accurate, but he's entitled to do it. It's extraordinary that this judge was made comment after comment uh, against President Trump, um, completely extraneous comments, and comments he thinks are funny, you know, references to uh, media figures and Marx Brothers, etc. Um, to say now that you, a private citizen who's a litigant in a civil case, is barred from commenting on the political bias or potential political bias of, a, of the court or a court staff member in a public forum in a matter of great public interest on penalty of possibly being jailed or some other sanction the judge is now considering is absolutely un-American, extraordinary, abusive, and has no place in our justice system. Uh, what are the odds uh, that you will have a similar gag order issued uh, in the Alvin Bragg case, uh, which is somehow a business records case, which, while I think it probably never should have been, uh, been brought, uh, somehow has become a criminal case? Uh, don't you think that we're, we're now going to see a succession of these gag orders? I would think so. Judge Merchant said early on he wasn't intending to impose a gag order. But he's a very, like, uh, defensive, sensitive judge. Uh, I, I don't know if it's an ego issue or what's going on there. Um, but uh, I, I, would, I would not be surprised if he ended up entering a gag order. You also have some, you know, pretty abusive prosecutors in that case, too, um, who are going to push for that kind of thing, I would think. Um, you know, I, I think if they were smart and they think that the things President Trump's saying are offensive or otherwise, they'd let him just keep talking. But they know that, you know, he's got a tremendous following. And perhaps they know that the things he's uh, bringing out, like this connection with Senator Schumer or whatever, support the thesis, at least, 
that there's a political agenda here, a political bias, and that that shouldn't be a part of the judicial system, either the criminal justice system or the civil litigation system. But that's what the First Amendment protects. The First Amendment protects speaking about that kind of thing, and it's even heightened when it's a matter of great public interest, political importance, especially during election campaign, and when it has to do with the trial of a matter in our courts, courts that are open to the public and to the media in all regards, and again, the public and the media have independent constitutional rights to access to these things. And so to chill the speech, it serves no real constitutional or American issue uh, interest, in my view. I, I want to tell you just a very quick anecdote. I, I had it happen yesterday, um, which shocked me. You know, I, I'm not, I don't really hang around with political rallies, political figures much. Um, yesterday, I was in the airport in Washington, D.C., and I saw a group of students, maybe 50 or 100, I'm not sure how many, and many or most of the students had bright red shirts on that said, Make America Great Again. I'd never seen a T-shirt with that on it. I've only seen the hats. So I approached one, and I said, What's this all about? Are you a group uh, supporting Donald Trump? They said, Yes, we are. They were on a trip from Des Moines, Iowa, to Washington, D.C., and they love President Trump. So I said, Well, let me take – I spoke to the adults in the group. I asked if I could take their picture, and then I would text it to President Trump, and if he was online, he would respond and want to talk to them all, um, as he always, you know, would. So we did that. The kids were so incredibly thrilled, as were their chaperones. One of them said it was the greatest day of his life to think that he would have some contact with President Trump. He had, it turned out, President Trump didn't get it until after their flight had taken off. And he, of course, said, get them on the phone right now. I'd love to talk to them. But uh, that's the kind of following. I'd never really been exposed to that before. And I said to President Trump, you know, you must see this kind of thing all the time, I guess. But I'd never seen that kind of real devotion and all that. I, I, you know, it's, it's all, all across the country. That's what I think scares folks like Jack Smith and these others. And again, a guy like Jerry Nadler, who said, and I think 2019, uh, we can't trust the voters. We have to use extraneous measures to get rid of President Trump was the implication. That's about as un-American a comment as I've ever heard from a lawmaker in this country ever. Yeah, that, that is uh, the great, uh, I should say, uh, surprising uh, aspect of this entire phenomena. Uh, in other words, when, uh, when President Trump announced that he would run again, he had a solid base in the Republican Party. Uh, he raised some money, uh, but it, it, is, uh, it is counterintuitive uh, the way this tsunami of lawfare has actually turbocharged his candidacy in a way that you could never have foreseen. I mean, I, I am one who has studied Trump polling numbers all the way back to when he was doing marketing studies for the old Trump casino organization. Uh, and uh, I can tell you that the reason that that consumers, in this case gamblers, uh, went to a Trump property instead of, say, the Golden Nugget, was Donald Trump. People, working people particularly, blue-collar people, uh, minorities, uh, loved Donald Trump. I think it was aspirational, meaning uh, they loved, uh, you know, they loved his bravado, they loved his lifestyle. They loved the helicopter and the jet and the beautiful models and the mansions uh, uh, and the gold gilt. Uh, and, you know, it didn't matter if the 
golden nugget down the street offered them two bucks off a steak dinner. They wanted to gamble with Donald Trump. Uh, but as a 45-year student of polling uh, and someone who's looked at these numbers ad nauseum essentially my entire adult life, I've never really seen anything quite like the phenomena that is unfolding. With each criminal indictment, with each gag order, uh, with each uh, leak, and that's the other thing, they, these prosecutors leak uh, to damage you, he only grows stronger. Uh, they only increase the chances uh, of him winning, assuming we can have a free, fair, honest, transparent election, which, of course, we are all in favor of. He said something this past Tuesday in Iowa, which really surprised me. He said that he was prepared to go to prison if that is necessary to save this country, uh, which means he clearly believes that at least hypothetically he could be elected president from a prison cell, which I guess as long as he is not charged uh, with seditious conspiracy, or I guess it's insurrection, um, he remains eligible to be president. Yeah, I mean, I even have, I think it was a constitutional question, even if he were charged with that, whether that would override the qualifications clause for the president. But that's another issue hopefully we never have to face. But no, listen, the fact that you, I, I'm going to say on record here that I believe there's no person in this country uh, who knows more about polling, assessing political candidacies, what makes the polls move, uh, what makes candidates win and lose, than Roger Stone. So the fact that you know, you've never seen anything like this before is a function, number one, of the fact that there's never been anything quite like this before. But number two is, is really extraordinary. I also think that in addition to policy uh, issues and charisma and all of those things that you mentioned, I believe in the American people, as I know you do, and in their fundamental fairness. And I believe that one major reason we see these spikes in the uh, upward spikes in the polls with each indictment is that the American people fundamentally believe that the indictments are unfair, shouldn't have been brought, um, and at least the people responding to the polls, and uh, that that's driving them also, that they refuse to permit these kinds of agendas to our criminal justice system and otherwise through litigation to prevent them from casting their vote uh, for the candidate that they want, or even if they weren't going to vote for him, they, for Donald Trump, they don't want that to be a part of our system. They want elections to be based on policy issues, and that's it, and not using these kinds of tools as a weapon. Um, and I think what they see is the conglomeration of all of these cases at one time. Take the civil case, for example. Donald Trump's been in business as a brand. Everybody knew for decades, decades, and decades. All of a sudden, you get a prosecutor who runs in a campaign of getting Donald Trump, and he's now announced the election, and you see this case brought against Trump and his organization, all that. Same thing with Alvin Bragg, ran on a platform, being the first one to convict Trump when he wasn't even under investigation or indictment. These are outrageous things that I think really hit people wrong. Well, and you add to it, obviously, uh, uh, the, the manifestation of open borders, uh, which are, is a crime epidemic uh, in the country, uh, which is a, a drug epidemic in the country, specifically fentanyl. 
the Biden administration's decision to essentially uh, reject all oil and gas drilling permits uh, and close uh, exploration uh, in the Arctic, uh, returning us to having to go hat in hand to Venezuela or to Saudi Arabia uh, or elsewhere for oil. Uh, 76% increase uh, in the price uh, of groceries, uh, epic uh, inflation, uh, which is killing the buying power uh, of the working family's dollar. And now, bigger than all of that, which I spoke about in the first segment of the show, uh, I honestly believe we are on the cusp of World War III. So the very people who told us uh, Donald Trump will crash the economy and cause World War III, they themselves are on the verge of crashing the economy and causing World War III. It's, it's a toxic mix for the Democrats, and I think that they are so certain of their correctness that they cannot see the political volatility of it. Uh, David, we had two uh, surprise announcements late last week. Uh, they were that uh, lawyer Sidney Powell uh, and lawyer Kenneth Chesborough uh, both pled guilty uh, in Georgia uh, to charges by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Wills. They are charged uh, with a group of others, including President Donald Trump. Uh, I guess the charge is knowing the election uh, was lost and seeking to reverse the results. not really clear to me. Um, I do not know Mr. Chesborough. I've never met Sidney Powell. Uh, I, I've, I, I, uh, I'm very surprised uh, by this result. What is your reaction to these uh, guilty pleas? I'm surprised by it also to some degree, given the way their lawyers were talking about uh, the lawyer for uh, Chesborough, or however his name is pronounced, has been saying in the media all day long uh, for weeks that uh, his client would never plead guilty, that uh, he's going to fight this thing all the way. They demand a trial and so on. But, you know, the prosecutor holds all the cards and they can make a deal as sweet as they want it to be. Um, and they sort of have all of the leverage in the process. Sidney Powell pled to misdemeanors. I'm not sure yet what um, Chesborough is pleading to. They both agreed testify truthfully, you know, they would have a tough time uh, pinning the idea that this was a stolen election or that the steps need to be taken on Donald Trump, uh, since they clearly uh, were the lawyers advising on that case. Sidney Powell was all over the place with this Kraken uh, business that she spoke about. Um, you know, Donald Trump is a layperson. He relied on his lawyers without any question. And you can say, that as you know, Jack Smith says, well, people told him uh, it was a fair election. Some people did, and some people told him and showed him date, reams of data that they believed showed that the election wasn't fair, that there were irregularities. They acted on that advice. Um, you know, I, I don't know what their thinking is. I think the immediate impact of the case, though, of the pleas, is that it may well move up uh, a trial for Donald Trump and the other defendants in time. Because remember, these folks had demanded a speedy trial. They were going to go to trial later this month, and um, uh, the trial was going to last for three to four months. 
It would have given President Trump and the others a complete preview of the evidence, um, which is a major advantage. I think that's partially what drove the prosecution in this case to offer sort of sweetheart deals. You know, Sidney Powell has to write a letter of apology. But, uh, you know, you're also talking about people who have never been on that side of the criminal justice system before. And so, uh, you know, it's not unexpected to see people like that, lawyers, white-collar defendants, fold. Uh, it does seem, however, that the Sixth Amendment has evaporated, that there is, there is no protection uh, when a lawyer uh, is defending his client. Uh, I was shocked uh, to see uh, Judge Beryl Howell, who's now retired in D.C., uh, rule that certain of President Trump's lawyers had to turn over uh, their notes of their conversations with him and presumably ultimately testify regarding their conversations with him. I would have thought that that would all have been protected by the privilege. Has the privilege just evaporated? Yeah, I think it was protected. I think that's one of the major mistakes. By the way, she just stepped down as chief judge. She's still sitting as a judge, another real anti-Trumper. Um, I think that her uh, decision was terrible in the case. I think, you know, she turned over Evan Corcoran's notes, President Trump's lawyer at the time, uh, in wholesale fashion, just about. Didn't let him review the redactions that were made, which is really uh, also extraordinary. And uh, I think that that, in fairness, should be the undoing of the Florida case, because I think that evidence went to the grand jury, tainted the entire indictment process, and it never should have happened. Um, so I think that's a major issue in the case. But yes, in, when it comes to Trump-related cases, they wave this banner of crime fraud exception to the uh, attorney-client privilege around. Courts are all too willing to buy into it simply because a charge has been raised, or even in the case of a judge in California, before a charge has been raised, they find that the crime fraud, fraud exception must, have apply, must apply, and they, the privilege was waived. And I think it's terrible. It's chilling to the attorney-client uh, privilege relationship. I think it's going to reverberate uh, throughout uh, relationships around the country like that. I think it's very dangerous. Again, that's a fundamental principle of our criminal justice system, and that is that a client must be able to rely on the confidentiality uh, between the communications between lawyer and client, and it's the client's uh, right and privilege, not the lawyer's. All right. Um, I'm afraid we are out of time. I want to thank uh, uh, criminal defense attorney David Schoen, criminal defense attorney extraordinaire for uh, sharing his expertise with us today. David, have a blessed Sunday, uh, and thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you very much. It's an honor. This is a Roger Stone, and we're back on The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio, where we are making AM radio great again. Joining me now is Darren Beatty, uh, the founder of Revolver.News. If you don't subscribe to Revolver.News, well, you don't know what you're missing. It could be one of the most important alternative news sites in the country uh, where you get not only breaking news, but some of the very best analysis that can be found anywhere uh, on the Internet. Uh, and joining me now, as I say, is uh, Darren Beatty uh, to talk about uh, a truly groundbreaking article. The headline is Top Biden Intel Official 
outed as Palestinian activists has some very dark associations. Darren Beatty, thank you for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Great to be with you. Thank you, Roger. So um, let's try to set the table here. Let me just read the first uh, couple graphs. Hamas's gruesome terrorist attack uh, on the part of Israel's vaunted security establishment. This tragic attack has also encouraged some healthy critical reflection on the Biden regime's Middle East policy. In a colossal blunder worthy of the legendarily inaccurate financial commentator Jim Cramer, thought that was hysterical, by the way, Biden's <laughs> national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, you remember him, he was uh, among those pushing the fake Trump Russian bank narrative, as well as the 51 uh, intelligence uh, operatives who claimed that Hunter Biden's laptop uh, was uh, Russian disinformation, said only two weeks ago that the Middle East is now quieter than it has been in two decades. Uh, what appears to be true uh, more succinctly is that the Biden administration was actually infiltrated by a Hamas sympathizer who enjoys a senior role within Biden's national security apparatus. Uh, I would say that if everything reported uh, in your seminal piece at Revolver.News is true, this could be the biggest spy scandal since Alger Hiss. Tell us about it. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, there's this individual, Mar Bittar, who enjoys a very senior role within Biden's mm -hmm. national security apparatus. Now, he has a very interesting, and I think it's fair to say, okay. scandalous history, much of which was unearthed um, at his appointment in 2021 and then just sort of died out and everyone forgot about it. Hmm. Um, but Bittar, as a graduate student, um, was involved in a, an organization called Students for Justice in Palestine. In fact, he was more than involved, he was uh, one of the executors. He, he had a leadership role in this organization. And this organization has regained notoriety in the media for essentially celebrating the, uh, the recent Hamas attack on Israel. In fact, some of the chapters were you know, praising Hamas for the ingenious tactic of using paragliders and so forth, and various subchapters were celebrating it one way or another. So that just gives you a sense of the type of organization that he not only belonged to, but occupied a senior leadership role in. Um, you know, there's a picture of him wearing the Kefia and holding his fist up against the backdrop of a sign saying divest from Israeli apartheid. Um, and of course, he goes from this to a variety of important roles in government, culminating in his role with Biden. But before Biden, he had uh, a role in the State Department, um, uh, of course, related to Mideast affairs. Then he enjoyed a role in the Obama administration, actually in the portfolio of Israel and Palestine within Obama's National Security Council, which is amazing history that I just mentioned. Now, it's worth adding kind of side notes that may actually be a side note because it gets to the network that is really more important than any individual. 
um, among his colleagues in the Obama administration uh, was an individual called Robert Malley that I imagine many of your listeners would be aware of. And if not, this guy, I mean, I would say Malley maybe more deserves the Alger Hiss comparison. This other guy is an up-and-coming version of it, but Malley is a more senior figure. And he's recently gained media attention for a very curious case. It's come to light that he had the security clearance revoked. He's the guy that Biden tasked essentially with re-engaging the Iran deal that Trump wisely uh, continued. And just think of that for a moment. How bad does it have to be for the Biden administration? Now, Malley himself has a storied history. He's been through many administrations. He had, he's from a very well-off um, and important family with ties to the FLN, which was the um, resistance movement in Algeria. He actually banned from France. His family was banned from France due to their sympathies for the FLN. And in one of these amazing connections that just shows how small the world is for treacherous scumbags, he was a class of current Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in France, <laughs> the, the country that ultimately banned his family for their FLN sympathies. And there are all sorts of questions there. So again, this is sort of a side digression, but not really a side, because you had this guy, Marbitar, who had the Israel-Palestine portfolio in Obama, at the same time as you had Mali occupying a senior role in the administration related to the Iran deal. And as we know, it's like the Biden administration is pretty much an extension of Obama. This, you know, reappeared under Biden, where until recently, Mali was in charge of Iran and Bitar got a promotion overseeing intelligence programs in the NSC. And of course, you go back to the records, Mali was over the moon when the news came out that Bitar was getting this top role under Biden. He said, oh, this is my great, my dear friend and colleague and so forth. And so Mali is one association. Another association is he had, he was a uh, deputy for Samantha Power uh, when Samantha Power was at the UN. Again, this was under Obama. Samantha Power had a lot of uh, extremely controversial things to say about Israel, which she later backtracked in order to be politically palatable, but uh, it's available online. She had some a series of controversies related to that. So that's another questionable one. And finally, the one that I find the most interesting, because Revolver has done a great deal in bringing this individual's name to the national awareness Bitar was actually, so you can just imagine how much damage he's doing in foreign policy, but the real prolific characters are able to do damage in both foreign and domestic. And apart from this decorated resume uh, that I've described, Bitar was the counsel for Adam Schiff in the impeachment proceeding against Trump. And Turns out he's very good friends with none other than Norm Eisen, another individual with a storied history of wreaking havoc on American interests both in the foreign and domestic policy domain. And Norm Eisen, in his book, he wrote a whole book about the in first impeachment. Bitar appears all over the place in this book. Norm Eisen reveals that he too was a longtime friend 
of Bitar and their friends going all the way back tenure in State Department. So it's one thing to look at an individual with questionable um, beliefs and organizations and belonging to a questionable organizations, but what you see here is a whole network of individuals, and Bitar is deeply connected with a whole host of these people. So that's very disturbing, not terribly surprising, but Biden's bungling of Mideast policy highlighted in recent weeks, I think, bring renewed attention to just what a disaster of the personnel issue is with Biden. Uh, in 1973, almost 50 years ago, two weekends ago, uh, Israel was the victim of a surprise attack by the Egyptians uh, and the Syrians. Uh, and somehow mm -hmm. uh, this escaped uh, the, the attention of Israel's uh, vaunted intelligence agencies. Uh, Israel was spared total annihilation when Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir appealed to President Richard Nixon uh, for lethal aid because indeed uh, the Israelis were caught uh, without ammunition, almost out of ammunition, uh, with their backs uh, to the sea. Uh, this seems to me, this most recent intelligence failure, if there really was one, seems to be the single greatest mistake since that 1973 uh, episode. Do you think that people like Mali uh, and Batar uh, play some role in the fact that the Biden administration is trying to kind of have it both ways here, uh, insisting that they didn't know, uh, yet there seems to be credible reports that the Egyptians, among others, let U.S. intelligence know uh, that something was going to be afoot in Gaza? Well, you know, that's a great question, and it's possible to say one or another in relation to this specific event. I'm certainly comfortable saying in the grand scheme of policy, Natalie um, is definitely an advocate of normalizing relations with Iran, bringing Iran back into the fold and so forth. As to this specific which really is inconceivable because it's, you know, people make comparisons to 9-11 and, you know, 9-11 was obviously an intelligence failure of some, uh, of some degree, but it's at least conceivable of how, you know, maybe they got a bunch of different sorts of warnings and chatter, but, you know, it really was kind of a different situation, not to say that it shouldn't have been prevented, but, the notion that Hamas would have such free reign for so long, um, given that it's, you know, it's like that meme, you have one job. I mean, Israel has a lot of jobs, but one of the obvious jobs that they've, you know, undertaken for a very long time is you have to keep that area secure. And it's not that difficult given the capacities. And so it's very hard to imagine how something like that could have happened. And, you know, maybe, U.S. officials, you know, now we're in a position to know. But, you know, I think the the more pressing question is, yeah, we're in the Israeli position. I mean, they they rely 
on their contacts in Egypt, you know, the same contacts for what's going on with Hamas. So it wouldn't be like these Egyptian contacts let the U.S. know and not Israel know, because Israel has a better relationship with them than we do, and we actually rely on on them for that information more than, you know, they rely on us. So it's um, it's very strange. It's, it's hard to explain, and, you know, there's all this attention to, you know, what a draconian response people want um, in order to, you know, uh, for retribution and so forth which is understandable, but I think a serious and sensible country would have to include as part of that um, a real reckoning as to who's responsible for this security failure, because it's really an unforgivable thing. And it's also, frankly, deeply embarrassing. Um, I think a serious country would make that a top priority to figure out who screw up this is, and you know, I don't know if not execute them. You need you need here to say this is not acceptable. Well, I think we can presume that there will be some post-event uh, investigation, but uh, much like the the Saudis' role in 9/11, which has still not been completely and totally disclosed to the American people. Uh, we just have to take uh, former CIA director John Brennan's word for it that they didn't do anything wrong. Uh, I have a distinct feeling that we will never really know the answer to this question. Uh, it yeah. does seem surprising to me, uh, given the Mossad's uh, fame for their uh, for their uh, capabilities, uh, that they would be caught uh, by surprise like this. Uh, your article mentions a woman, I'm, I'm going to mangle her name, uh, Ariane Tabai, I guess it is. Can you uh, tell me who she is and where she fits into all of this? Yes. Yeah. So this is sort of part of the side story in relation to Mali. Uh, the individual that I was talking about earlier. And, you know, I mentioned Mali maybe is more deserving of this comparison because it came out that not only Mali, you know, this was kind of developing my point earlier. You imagine in this environment, Mali, who had a senior trusted role with both Biden and Obama and comes from a favored going all the way back, you know, literal childhood friends with Blinken. And Blinken's also from a very favored family, incidentally, a very interesting family. So it's interesting, you know, when when you really kind of drill down on, you know, these people who end up as fixtures in the State Department and these diplomatic roles and other things, um, there really is this whole different world that I think most Americans don't realize is just how much is based on you know, families and, and nepotism and, you know, generations going all the way back. There's this, that's actually an interesting component of story of whatever, you know, the quote unquote deep state is. You need to look at these sort of genealogical issues as well to really have an understanding of it. And a lot of it seems to kind of contradicts pretty forcefully a lot of the illusions we operate under in terms of you know, meritocracy and democracy and this sort of thing, which 
it's an interesting and separate conversation, but um, there's no way someone of Nally's stature, given the current political environment, would have the security clearance revoked unless it's just inconceivably bad. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd have to be, you know, it would have to be Hunter Biden level South plus, you know, plus, but with Iranians, basically, <laughs> um, you know, in Iran with Iranian prostitutes, like I'm not really suggesting that, but it, it, it would have to be really bad because there's, you know, this other lady in the, the DOD that you mentioned, um, uh, again, very difficult to, um, to describe, but uh, this is part of this Iranian influence network, to call it, um, you know, collaborators, uh, perhaps. And this individual didn't even have her clearance revoked. Uh, and she's clearly an agent of influence for Iran. And so the fact that Mali did um, is an enduring mystery. And I really hope the full story of that somehow comes to light of exactly what went on with him, what he's doing, what his status was. Because it took a lot of pressing to just find out, you know, that he's on leave in the first place. Uh, it is reported that he's uh, current un- currently under investigation uh, by the FBI, but we really, we really don't know much more than that, folks. If you are just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show on seventy-seven WABC, and we are talking with Darren Beatty, who is the founder of Revolver News, News, uh, about his groundbreaking story uh, pertaining to the high probability that the Biden administration was infiltrated at the highest levels by pro-Palestinian activists. Uh, This is an extraordinary story. Uh, Let me ask you uh, a a bigger picture story here, Darren. It looks to me like we're headed to World War III. In other words, the people who told us that Donald Trump, if elected, would crash the economy uh, and start World War III appear to me to be on the cusp of crashing the economy and starting World War III. Uh, These stories in the UK Daily Mail, uh, the post-millennium, others, millennial, pardon me, uh, late last week, uh, that 2,000 troops have already been selected uh, for deployment uh, to Israel. Uh, we know for a fact that there are already 3,000 quote-unquote contractors there working for the intelligence services. Now, we're assured that, that none of these American troops are going to see combat, but that's what they said at the beginning of the Vietnam War as well. Right. Well, it's very troubling. Um, yeah, I don't know if I go so far as to say World War Three yet, um, but certainly it's um, it's a very volatile situation. And we to see the extent of escalation, and, and I imagine there's a lot of conversations going on behind the scenes to prevent that. It's you know the. 
because for me, and I talked to contacts and, you know, multiple contacts in Israel, each of whom, you know, is, you know, very, very intelligent and, and very active. You know, uh, some are saying that, you know, there's a question of how how and why did Hamas even do this? What uh, done this uh, level of um, from Iran and Hezbollah. I've heard other accounts that say that Hamas kind of acted a little bit on their own and Hezbollah and Iran are upset. Part of the negotiations going on behind the scenes. So it's really hard to say. I think it'll be premature to make any predictions until we see how the ground invasion goes in Gaza and what responses to that. And I think that will determine a lot of the future course of things in terms of how many different parties get involved in. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our guest, Darren Beatty, the founder of Revolver.News. If you don't subscribe to Revolver.News, I strongly recommend it to you. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on The Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC Radio. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. Uh, Don't uh, wait another second to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC Radio app because you don't want to miss all of the incredible programming we have here in the most dynamic AM radio show, uh, I should say station, in the nation. Uh, Joining us now to talk about our favorite subject, politics, is Jason Miller. Jason Miller is the communications director and official spokesperson for former president, soon to be uh, the next president, Donald J. Trump. Jason, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Roger, great to be back with you. It's always exciting to uh, to be on the show and try to give folks a little bit of an insight of what's going on behind the scenes with President Trump. And uh, just as we wrap up one crazy week, we're ready for another crazy week. So it's uh, uh, all, all leading up to uh, getting President Trump back into the White House. Yeah, you really have a front row seat in one of the most incredible, counterintuitive, dynamic, presidential campaigns uh, in American history. I mean, I'm a I'm an old timer. I'm a veteran of 13 Republican presidential campaigns, each one of them different. Uh, if you tried to get me to tell you which president was my favorite, I'd still go with DJT. Uh, but uh, you are really, uh, you know, you are really uh, involved in something that could never have been foreseen. By that, I mean, Look, we've had a a president, uh, Grover Cleveland, a New Yorker, ironically, 
uh, who was elected president, uh, then was turned out of office in a disputed election, uh, and then returned to the White House. So this has only happened once before, but if we go on polling, which is what you and I make our decisions on, it appears to me like it's going to happen again. Well, you're exactly right on that. Give folks kind of a sense of where things are. So in the primary, President Trump is ahead by somewhere between like 53 and 57 points. Like it's a it's a, a pretty big spread uh, with new polling that just came out the other day from Emerson uh, that has President Trump uh, in the mid 50s and uh, Nikki Birdbrain Haley uh, at eight percent, and then Tiny D Rob DeSanctimonious is now at eight percent also. The reason why this is uh, quite notable is, I mean, this is just a stunning fall from grace for Rob DeSanctis to now be down at 8%, uh, which is just, uh, anyway, so that's at the national Republican primary. When you look at the early states, early state voting, uh, most of Iowa, New Hampshire in the 33 to 37% range, and then South Carolina, it's somewhere right around 40, 41%. So pretty good margins in all the early voting states. So President Trump's in great shape there. When you look to the general election, this, Roger, uh, is where uh, someone like yourself who's a, a student has been around to see some of these. When President Trump won Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania in 2016, it was the first time in a generation that a Republican had won any of those states. Of course, we know about all the issues that went into 2020, but now as we look at these, not only is President Trump in great shape when it comes to Arizona and Georgia, uh, but when you look at Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, particularly Pennsylvania, where he's consistently two to three points ahead. Michigan, where he's pretty consistently ahead by one or two. And then Wisconsin, it's pretty consistently about even or up one. And then Nevada is within the margin of error, one or two points either direction. I mean, as of this moment, even the the biggest skeptic, the biggest naysayer, says that President Trump is probably somewhere around 280 uh, electoral votes, so well over the the 270 that you need. Uh, And so politically, everything is going really good for President Trump right now, which, again, Roger, to kind of stick the landing here, that goes to why Joe Biden gave that speech in the Oval Office this last week, because uh, Wag the Dog isn't just a, a crappy movie from uh, back in the was that back in the nineties. Um, it also is real life, where Joe Biden is saying, "Hey, don't look at the twenty percent cumulative inflation. Let's talk about sending more money to Ukraine." Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. These, I think, these people are prepared to uh, risk World War Three if they think it might get them reelected. I mean, I I read uh, in the I guess it was the UK Daily Mail, also in the post millennial, uh, that they've already pre selected 200 uh, US troops uh, to be deployed uh, in Israel. Uh, this is beginning to look to me like we may be headed to an extraordinarily expensive two front war. Uh, and I, it's funny because the people who told us Donald Trump, if he's elected, he'll crash the economy and he'll start World War III. Except for these are the people who appear to me to be preparing to crash the economy and start World War III. What was your overall impression of Biden's presentation from the Oval Office? So as, let's put aside, uh, put aside some of the, the optics of just struggling against the teleprompter. And uh, we know that Biden's not good uh, at 8 p.m. at night. 
Uh, it's about four hours past kind of his window. They, even his staffers have said he's good between about noon and 4 p.m. So uh, uh, you're kind of um, uh, playing with fire or anything after 4 p.m. for how he's going to do, although in fairness, he's not much better between 12 and 4. But Biden, the, the shorter version of Biden's remarks appeared to be, if you want to stand with Israel, send more money to Ukraine. And it made no sense. If you want to combat anti-Semitism, then let's combat Islamophobia. And then if you really care, though, about the state of Israel, then we need to uh, effectively take a step closer to war with Vladimir Putin. The way that he combined all these issues, and not to mention that this, uh, this omnibus foreign aid package he wants to put together is also going to include our border funding. So essentially, uh, President Biden is going to now shift away from dealing with hostages in Gaza to holding the American taxpayers hostage, all with an effort to get money to Ukraine. It's bizarre. It's out of touch. It's a total non sequitur. Uh, these, these, these two are not connected in any way, shape, or form. But to your point, he seems hell-bent on taking us into, uh, into a global conflict. And I mean, look, Putin's a bad guy, not someone who you're <laughs> ever going to catch me uh, defending or saying anything nice about. But I, I have not seen any report that he had something to do with Gaza attacks on Israel. That was Iran. And so why are we dealing, trying to make this a, uh, a multi-front war when this is really about Iran funding Hamas and Joe Biden sending money to both of them? I don't know if there's any connection. It is that the U.S. pressured Israel to send munitions to Ukraine that they probably now wish they had for their own defense. There, there's, there's the only real connection. But they don't seem to learn their lesson. In other words, Donald Trump choked off the Iranian economy, destroyed their oil producing capacity. Let it be known around the world that if you buy oil from them, you cannot do business with us. It was extraordinarily effective. He cut off funding for Hamas. He cut off funding for Hezbollah. Uh, his Iran policy was extraordinarily effective. Uh, John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, appears to me to have violated the Logan Act during the four years of the Trump administration while he was trying to re-up the nuclear arms deal that President Trump very wisely killed. Uh, now, in the very next breath, they give the they unfreeze $6 billion of assets for Iran, which uh, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times even both admit uh, is involved in this Hamas attack uh, in Gaza. Uh, and last night, two nights ago, I guess, uh, Joe Biden announces that we're going to give $100 million in additional, quote-unquote, humanitarian aid uh, to Hamas. These people never seem to learn the lessons. No, they really don't. And the other thing, too, is all of this is going, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum here. This is happening, as I referenced a moment ago, with in the midst of 20 percent cumulative inflation for American consumers since Joe Biden has taken office. We have uh, the highest home mortgage rates in uh, over 20 years, I think, since the year 2000. And Americans are, are suffering. I mean, the uh, Americans are really, really struggling to um, whether just simply the trip to the grocery store to fill up their uh, the gas tank. And 
the only thing that Joe Biden's doing here is we're, how do we go and send money to other places? And that's where, you know, they try to use a little bit of a fig leaf cover, uh, whether they throw in like, oh, we're going to throw some uh, uh, some money for the people suffering from the fires in Maui. Uh, or maybe let's go and try to hold uh, politically hold hostage funding for the southern border, which, again, is a crisis that Biden created. I mean, there was no border crisis under President Trump, and just because of Biden's policies, now that now that there is one, uh, but it, we're this is into a, a dangerously inept phase of this Biden presidency. And you know, Roger, a, a smart point that I'd, I'd make for you here is if Joe Biden couldn't even manage a withdrawal from Afghanistan, how would he ever manage a ramp up? In other countries. Yeah, you see, I think President uh, Trump's uh, great asset on the world stage was his unpredictability. Uh, Nixon referred to this in his private conversations uh, with Dr. Henry Kissinger as the madman theory. In other words, Henry, you go to Paris and you tell the North Vietnamese, there's no telling what Nixon might do to you. I mean, this guy could use every weapon in the arsenal. Uh, And I think Trump's unpredictability is what kept the Russians out of Ukraine, which kept the Chinese uh, out of Taiwan, uh, which kept our enemies uh, in the Middle East at bay. Uh, And Biden is entirely predictable uh, because he pursues a policy of weakness. Uh, If that weakness ultimately ends up Uh, with the Chinese uh, moving on Taiwan uh, and given Chinese pivotal role in the production of of computer chips, uh, I think that he's going to get an economic downturn, uh, an impact on the country that will make re-election even more difficult. So this past... Go ahead. You make a really good point there because... Uh, the global markets, and obviously we care about the U.S. market, but in, in a certain extent, it's all interconnected. Markets clench up when there's kinetic warfare. And uh, markets also clench up when there's uncertainty. And there is no certainty in the world with Joe Biden in as the U.S. president. And that means what the interactions are going to be with, uh, with other leaders. And look, there are certain places in the world where there are going to be some bad guys uh, who are in charge of their countries. Uh, but there's an aspect of stability. Markets know how to react to it. People know what to expect, where the investments are going to go, where the trade is going to go, things like that. When it becomes completely unstable and everybody is testing the United States, really started with Afghanistan, because once you lose deterrence, you can't get it back. Like once it's once people realize that, uh, that, that there's just, there are no repercussions um, whether it's coming across our southern border, whether it's uh, uh, killing Americans in Afghanistan, uh, they're, they're, you can't put that, that genie back in the bottle. And so we're in a, a state of global uncertainty right now, and it's only going to devolve further. Uh, folks, if you're just uh, tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. Uh, and we're talking with Jason Miller. Uh, communications director and uh, spokesman for uh, President Donald Trump. He has a ringside seat in the most exciting presidential campaign in American history. Uh, It is amazing the way this 
tsunami of lawfare against the president has fueled his campaign, both in terms of voter support and voter intensity, uh, as well as low uh, and middle dollar fundraising. Uh, I really, I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, I predicted back in April uh, that ultimately uh, in multiple jurisdictions, uh, they would seek to gag President Trump because he is so very effective as a counterpuncher uh, and he has uh, used his social media platform, in this case, uh, Truth Social, uh, to uh, lay out who the bad guys are uh, and to lay out the political motives of his various persecutions. Uh, what is your reaction to uh, two things that happened this past week. First, uh, the order by Judge Chutkin in D.C., uh, which gags the president uh, and uh, prohibits him and his supporters. This is, read that part carefully, uh, Jason. Uh, his supporters and family members from commenting on certain aspects uh, of his trial in D.C. And now, even more outrageous, in my opinion, uh, the judge in the New York civil trial uh, who is, uh, you know, accused the president of inflating the value of his assets when in fact I think they were undervalued. Now he's threatening to jail our president. How do you react to all this? And I understand you have to be somewhat judicious in your choice of words. Well, as someone who's been a, a longtime advocate of free speech and uh, someone who lived through the 2020 campaign and saw what the, um, uh, I know in the past we kind of jokingly referred to them as the, the deep state, which is all funding games until you realize that it's actually true. They do coordinate and work together on all these, these different things. Um, when they suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop scandal that would have led to one out of every seven Biden voter uh, going for President Trump instead. But so right now, the current state of play for either whether it's the president or someone who's uh, closely with him on his team is that we can say anything we want about crooked Joe Biden. We can talk about how he has weaponized the justice system, uh, how he's using his judiciary hitmen. Uh, to go and attack President Trump, um, can criticize Merrick Garland uh, by name, and then anything after that, um, boy, better just stay quiet. Uh, which, when you think about it, is it, it's it's really kind of just chilling. I mean, it's um, the way that uh, that free speech is is being attacked here um, is uh, is quite scary. Should uh, should concern anybody uh, who sees uh, what's going on here, and so. Um, you know, boy, I, I tell you, it's it's um, it's it's shocking. I mean, what do you what do you even say on that? I've never seen anything like this in American political or legal history. Yeah, I've uh, obviously experienced the gag order myself. Was not uh, allowed to defend myself in a D.C. trial in which I was actually convicted of lying under oath to cover up Russian collusion that never actually took place of which there was no evidence whatsoever. Uh, so I've been in this particular meat grinder. Um, I, just as my opinion as a layman, I think uh, that the gag orders are unconstitutional. I think it constitutes prior restraint on the president's speech. Uh, but at the same time, I do not think you should underestimate uh, the level of hatred uh, and the uh, animus that these prosecutors have for him. 
uh, it's bad enough that he has to spend his time in a courtroom when he should be out campaigning. But to his credit, he does not appear to be making the mistake that the great Ronald Reagan made in Iowa in 1980. Uh, every time I turn around, he's in the first in the nation caucus state of Iowa. That, to me, shows real important commitment. Well, and that's one of the things where, as we're kind of doing our, our planning meetings, our strategic recessions and, and things like that, that he said, look, guys, um, there's no chance that Ron DeSanctimonious or Nikki Burbrain Haley or these folks are going to catch us. And you know how we're going to make sure that remains the case? By going to Iowa, by going to New Hampshire, by going to South Carolina, by going to Nevada a lot. And we're going to be there and think he always impresses on us that there's no such thing as prevent defense. Uh, put the pedal to the metal, every uh, analogy that you can think of. And so if anything, with all these other attacks and distractions and things going on in the legal sense, we've actually increased our travel to where over the past six weeks we've been in Iowa every single week. Uh, which is great. We'll be back in New Hampshire on Monday. I'll be with him. We're going to go turn in our paperwork. Uh, so President Trump will be on the ballot in New Hampshire. And as everyone remembers, that was the first state that uh, he won uh, in 2016. It really kind of was the, the rocket fuel. It was kind of uh, onwards and upwards from there. And then he'll be giving remarks in Derry, New Hampshire. We're really going to go into a, a lot more detail in depth on talking about Biden's speech uh, from the Oval Office. So give you kind of a little bit of sneak preview on some of the uh, some of the remarks that President Trump is, is going to be given here shortly. Um, but uh, we're also now, Roger, in, in a, a political two front war, which actually one of our choosing, uh, which we like to have of taking it to Joe Biden as we kicked off the show, talking about the poll numbers and how things are in really good shape for, for President Trump uh, politically in the general election. Biden just continues to to spiral. I mean, his numbers have completely fallen out with African-American voters, Latino-American voters, youth voters. President Trump is winning across the board in all the swing states with independent voters. And people are saying, you know what, Uh, inflation's a problem, but also just at a general competence level. President Trump, maybe we like some of the tweets, maybe we didn't like some of the tweets, but guess what? The guy had a great economy. He kept us safe. And the country ran well. Joe Biden, the so-called expert, has been complete chaos ever since he's been in office. And people are just sick of it. Uh, Jason, what is your reaction to the announcement by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that he will abandon his attempt to wrest the Democratic nomination from Joe Biden uh, and now seeks to run as an independent? So I think it's, I don't know RFK Jr. personally, but kind of an outsider looking in and kind of putting on my political um, kind of uh, pundit hat on here for a moment. Not a smart move, and I'll tell you why. Um, There are a couple of issues uh, where RFK Jr. has kind of endeared himself to kind of counterculture people or people are anti-establishment um, where he has some some good street cred on and he built up uh, some new allies and, and new supporters. But when you then turn your, your guns on, say, President Trump, then you get yourself a whole lot of new enemies. So people start talking about how RFK Jr. wants to literally get rid of the Second Amendment. I mean, he wants the Second Amendment and all guns taken away. 
you take a look at the the pretty hardcore eco loon positions uh, the RFK Jr. has, or even got arrested for um, uh, protesting for climate change. And so, whereas he found himself with a whole bunch of new friends on a couple of uh, uh, more uh, libertarian, anti-establishment type positions. Now he's positioned himself as an opponent and a political enemy of President Trump's, which, as we know, gets you a whole lot of scrutiny. So I, I think just from the, the branding perspective, I don't know if that's necessarily the uh, the smartest thing that he's done. But um, again, since I don't know him at a personal level, maybe he doesn't care. Uh, very, very, very difficult to get on the ballot as an independent. Uh, for people who just think you just wave a wand and you're an independent, not that simple. You have to deal with 50 different state laws, state laws that are arcane, complicated, uh, expensive, labor-intensive, and uh, very tricky, almost all of which have a very short time frame for the collection of a very substantial number of accurate voter signatures on petitions that I guarantee you are going to be very carefully scrutinized by your opponents, whether they be Republicans or Democrats, depending uh, on the state. Uh, I have to say, in one of the most riveting pieces of television I've ever seen, Sean Hannity seemed to, to strike uh, Robert Kennedy dumbstruck the other night when he confronted him over his past support for Hillary Clinton in 2012, Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, Barack Obama, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, pointed out that Robert Kennedy once called the National Rifle Association a terrorist group. Uh, And then late last week, Kennedy actually said he was for reparations uh, over slavery. Uh, So to the extent that he was going to steal people from the Trump base based on his skepticism over the war in Ukraine or based on his support for sealing our borders, I think he will now be subjected to much broader scrutiny uh, that means that if he does get on the ballot, and that's a giant if, I think in the end he may take more from Joe Biden or who the Democrats ultimately nominate rather than Donald Trump. I would agree with you on that. And I'd also say that the the Cornell West candidacy, uh, and again, he has a lot of challenges even getting on the ballot in some of these states. Uh, but in states where you have maybe Cornell West and a uh, RFK Jr. as well, I, I think those are going to pull more from Biden. I think that's a real problem, especially when you talk for Cornell West, when you talk about Biden's uh, softness with black American voters. Uh, and again, uh, uh, no black voter is going to forget the, the racial jungle uh, comments that Biden made. Um, what was that some some 30 years ago? Uh, I guess it's 40 years ago now. Uh, it just, you know, Joe Biden has, has had a pretty bumpy record when it comes to um, also the, the crime bill in the 90s, things of that nature. Uh, and Biden has said some, some pretty inflammatory stuff that, uh, guess what, people in certain communities are not going to forget. All right. Many thanks to uh, Jason Miller. Folks, uh, thank you for joining us today on the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC. You want to hang on for my good friend Joe Piscopo who is coming right along with Evenings with Sinatra. If you love the chairman of the board, you're not going to want to miss this.